0: Hello there and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host Josiah Meyer and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. Today we're going to do um, kind of a fundamental foundational uh, podcast on the relation between faith and science or science and religion. And uh, this is something that uh, it's part of our communal story um, I was just watching uh, Cosmos, a do- documentary on kind of the um, the major new discoveries of science, and a big component of that, to my surprise, was this cartoonish kind of well, it was a cartoon going back through the Middle Ages and, and rehashing um, the supposed conflict between faith and science that held you know held the world back uh, with Copernicus and with Galileo. Um, and and this you know and then a direct link was then made um, to contemporary issues such as evolution and um, and six day creation etc. Uh, we can we can feel this tension uh, between science and religion on issues like homosexuality, on issues like abortion, on issues like stem cell research. It's something that you know it's very much a part of the elections that are going on right now. Something that we live every day and yet um, the um, often the most difficult part of resolving a a question is stating it correctly. If you can figure out what the what the question is and state it in a good way, then oftentimes you're you know the the work is half done uh, for resolving the conflict um, you know I, I wrote my I wrote a thesis because I have a master's in theology. And before I could do that, I had to ask the question, what's the, what am I trying to figure out here? And trying to figure out what I was trying to figure out took, all, I mean, it was a good third of the time of, of writing the paper, which is fairly typical. So um, the first thing I want to propose is that posing the question as science versus religion is an inadequate way of expressing this fundamental conflict. There is definitely a conflict here, but first of all, let's figure out what the conflict is. Where is the tension point? What are the two combatants? What are the two adversaries here? What is the fundamental question? I believe that the fundamental question is not which is true, science or religion, um, for several fundamental reasons. Number one, there's, these are not mutually exclusive categories. Um, we could phrase that playfully to say there's far too much fraternization with the enemy. Um, science is... Um, well, science is a a larger nebulous term, which is going to be one of my future points, but um, science, there's plenty of scientists that are Christians, there's plenty of Christians that are scientists, which is to say the same thing backwards. Um, So how do we try and say, well, science is in tension with religion? And this is something that six-day creationists often bring up, is that, look, there's plenty of very well-renowned um, very important uh, scientists who actually believe in six-day creation. So it's it's simplistic, it's overly simplistic to say um, that the battle today is between science and religion. Secondly, science is a nebulous, confusing term um, because of the Industrial Revolution, because of the Enlightenment um, and then the Industrial Re- Revolution, because of all the things that that science and technology has given us uh, we're all very excited about science and everybody wants to be scientific this and scientific that but it's it's the word science because it's such an exciting word Um, it's it's been used it's attached to everything from you know hair products to social agendas to you know historical um, interpretations of, of facts to biology and chemistry and physics, which, you know, that's kind of where science belongs, is in kind of hard disciplines. But when you get to the softer disciplines, people will still want to talk about the, the science of, of historical investigation or the scientific view on this social issue or that social issue. And, you know, at some point, as well, people will try and say, well, the scientific view, view of religion is atheism. When, you know, it, it, this word just kind of becomes everything, therefore it becomes, therefore it really means nothing. And so I have a hard time dividing uh, the current, you know, tension I feel between science and religion because I don't even know what science is. I don't know what that means. You could clarify that by say, saying atheistic science or uh, a scientific worldview attached to an atheistic belief. And that's fine, but not all Scientistic people, uh, not all scientists are atheists. As well, um, the the scientific worldview um, owes a huge debt to Christianity, and really properly functions uh, within a Christian uh, framework. Uh, Christians, Christian people, built the scientific uh, method. Uh, Galileo was a Christian, obviously, even though he he, you know, said some unwise things to the Pope, and and there was this whole situation there, but it was a Christian. They were both Christians. Da Vinci was a Christian. The, you know, Raphael was a Christian. Um, Newton was a Christian. Einstein, you know, was basically a, a deist, or he 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 was certainly was not an atheist at any rate. Um, most of the people that built the foundations of what we would call today the scientific worldview uh, were Christians, and many of them were driven um, well were driven to find the conclusions they had based on their religious beliefs and so it, it's a very strange argument to say, well, you know faith and science are in a battle with each other. Well, no, I mean most of the people for for most of Uh, of the history of science Uh, it's been Christian people that have have come up with the scientific methodology Um, the scientific method was not invented in for example the Buddhist um, milieu uh, over in the far east and Buddhism is the closest ancient equivalent to modern atheism at least certain forms of Buddhism don't believe in a god don't you know Basically, don't really believe in the supernatural, um, just in kind of the vague sense of the, the law of karma and things like that. Um, and that form of atheism didn't produce the, the scientific worldview, neither did Hinduism, neither did, um, you know, wh- whatever other religious or, or non religious systems there were on the market. It was the Christian system that created uh, the scientific worldview, and has always been very comfortable with the scientific worldview. And even somebody like Richard Dawkins has stated publicly that uh, science owes a debt of gratitude to Christianity for building it, and and certainly that is true. And so how can you say that there is... There, there is certainly a conflict somewhere here but it's it's overly simplistic just to say that science is always in conflict with religion because religion uh, gave birth to science as well fourthly um, there's certain um, science is the scientific method is built on certain premises that only make sense within the Christian worldview such as the belief that the world is separate from us and so science only makes sense if you're not Approaching it from a Buddhist perspective that the universe is me and I am the universe. Or a pantheistic perspective that, um, you know, God is in all and all is in God and I am in God. And, and if, if we're too close um, to the, the, the world, the universe needs to be separate from us so that we have some, some objectivity, a way of examining it and, and we can remove ourselves as the observer. Also, it has to be comprehensible, knowable. Um, It it has to um, make sense, it has to be rational, and it has to be um, learnable. So to say that again, um, science believes that the world is rational, knowable, other than ourselves, and it is observable, and believing that it's going to follow certain patterns. And historically, we believed that the world was rational, knowable, other than ourselves, and observable, because we believed in God. And we believe that God created this world for us and uh, God was um, an intelligent being that that would create an intelligent and and knowable universe. Well, if you take God out of the equation, I guess you can just say, well, I still believe that the world should be uh, rational, knowable, other than ourselves and observable. Um, But these are just arbitrary premises if you remove God from the equation. And an an atheist really has no way of substantiating why the world should be rational, why it should be governed by laws, because ultimately the atheist perspective, they're always going to push back to randomness and arbitrariness as being the fundamental cause of everything. How did, you know, how did life begin? Well, you know, there was enough time, enough chance in, in play that eventually somewhere life had to happen. How did the universe happen? Well, you know, there was a bubble theory, or there's these various theories. There was enough time, there was enough chance in play that the universe would come into existence. And on that, uh, on that basis, on that worldview, it's not at all clear that the world should be rational, knowable, observable. Because it's fundamentally chaotic and unpredictable. That's how we got order uh, on the atheistic perspective. And so, the old paradigm of science versus religion doesn't really work. First, because there's far too much um, overlap between the two. Secondly, because historically, um, science and religion have worked very well together. Thirdly, because science um, is a nebulous term, and we don't even know what that is. It's used for everything. It kind of almost means nothing these days. And fourth, because um, the scientific method is built on premises that really only makes sense within the Christian worldview. So that being said, um, there is a conflict somewhere, and we all feel the conflict, we all live the conflict. Um, So where where is that conflict? If it's not religion versus science, where is the conflict? And this is where I think my original contribution to this discussion can come in, because um, I think a better way to phrase the discussion is... um, to identify that there, is, there are two different, two different ways of knowing, and these, these are like the two legs that we have of approaching our world, that we, we know things in two different ways. And there's always going to be sort of a tension between these two, and yet there are two natural and normal ways of knowing things. And one of them has tended to be more associated with the scientific worldview. One is tend to be more associated with the religious worldview. And yet, what I'm going to argue is they're both valid ways of knowing things. And this is where the tension actually lies, is between what I'm going to call faith and fact. Now, if we're talking about ways of knowing things, we're going to be talking about epistemology. There's two different epistemological systems, and epistemology simply means a way of knowing things. Either you can uh, be told something, as a child is told something by their parents, and you either believe or disbelieve that based on whether the person that is communicating with you, you consider them to be trustworthy or not. Um, and at the end of that road, we're going to arrive at faith. Uh, I believe that when mom says, um, if I touch the hot stove, I'll get burned, uh, that this is a true statement. I can have faith in that, uh, belie- in that statement um, that she has revealed to me, that she has spoken to me. So that is a communication that I'm going to call revelation. And Christians will talk often about mystery and revelation. This is a a biblical uh, paradigm. A mystery in the Christian or biblical sense does not mean something that's smoke and mirrors and, and magical or anything like that. It just means something that you could not know any other way then through somebody telling you then through revelation somebody that knows the information is going to reveal the information to you that's revelation and um this is what we believe happens with scriptures that God reveals to us things that we could not know any other way as Jesus said in John 3 no one has ascended to the Father except him who let me read it for you here no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven the Son of Man and um Earlier, it he says, we speak to you that which we know. Yeah, in verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you do not accept our testimony. So Jesus is the only earth dweller that has ever been in heaven. And so he's revealing things to us that we have no access to. There's no way that we could know about what Jesus is speaking to us, there's no scientific access to that other than somebody going there, coming back, and telling us what they see. So that's revelation. The other epistemological model is investigation. Um, so we could, you know, as a child, reach out and touch the stove and get burnt with, you know, one of our five senses, and and then at the end of that, we know for ourselves whether this is. Um, whether the stove is hot. So you can you can investigate something, that's another valid um, avenue towards truth. And if you investigate something, you're going to arrive at a conclusion, and I'm going to call that facts. Now I need to put facts in parentheses because, um, just as faith, you can arrive at a certain sort of a truth called faith. And faith might be true or it might not be true, but I'm going to take that as truth. This is something I believe is true. Mom says the stove is hot. I believe that her... I'm, I'm going to add that to my worldview as a, tr- as a f- true statement that the stove is hot. Don't touch it. I can also um, arrive at quote-unquote truth through investigation, through trial and error, through my own five senses, through my own reasoning skills. And I can touch the stove and I can believe that the stove is hot. Now, it could also be possible... Um, that I got zapped due to a static charge, and the stove wasn't actually on. It was There was something else going on. Uh, maybe it was a very dry day or something like that, and I touched something metal, and that's actually what happened. The stove wasn't on. I got zapped because of static electricity. So when I say fact, that doesn't necessarily mean absolute truth. That means what I have discerned to be true through my own investigation. But um, there's these two different ways of arriving at truth. Either we can somebody can reveal something that we could not know other than their testimony, or we can investigate something and find something to be true for ourselves. So let's workshop this out uh, to help show you how this works. Um, My great my grandfather um, was uh, uh, he was Dutch and he was in Holland during World War II. Uh, during some very tumultuous times, and uh, he joined the Dutch underground, and he had um, a major hand to play in um, uh, revealing Im- important and crucial intelligence to the Allied forces, as well as, as sneaking out quite a number of Jews to their safety, uh, saving their lives from you know Nazi uh, death camps. And so this is, you know, my dad has re- recounted a number of I have stories to me, uh, and passed on um, some, you know, exciting tales of my dad, my grandfather as a spy, and things like this. Um, and so I believe more or less what he has told me as this is fact. This is what actually happened. I have faith in that. Um, the other way that I could arrive at trying to find uh, the truth about my grandfather is I could try and go to Holland and try and investigate and see whether this is true or not. But there's limits to that. I mean, if my grandfather was a good spy, uh, one would think he wouldn't have left a whole lot of traces behind him. He would have pretended he was a a German um, soldier and and things like this. And so there's going to be a lot of places, if you're going from investigation, uh, where the investigation is just just going to bump up at a dead end, and you're going to say, well, I I can't prove one way or another there's going to be a lot of question marks uh, when you're within the scientific um, mode of trying to prove things through investigation. There's going to be a lot of things that you can't prove, especially when we get to um, historical uh, questions. And there's going to be a lot of times when you, all that you have to go on is somebody's word for it. And so there's, there's two different ways of, of finding out truth. Sometimes they overlap and somebody tells us something, hey, the stove is hot, don't touch it, and we have the opportunity of testing it for ourselves if we would like, but sometimes we, somebody tells us something and there's no way of verifying that, and so we can either choose to believe them or not to believe them, and that pushes us to the question of, is this person reliable or not? And that becomes then the criterion of whether or not we're going to put confidence in, in what they say, is the reliability of our source. St. Augustine of Hippo, uh, writing in the 4th century A.D., um, wrote about these issues. And uh, he said, he, he gave a really good example that uh, due to um, genetic studies and, and paternal tests doesn't work completely nowadays, but it's still very illustrative of this, uh, of, of this reality that I'm trying to communicate to you. He said, most of us... Um, have never questioned whether our father is our father um, it when it you know but when it comes right down to it uh, the only person who really knows who your father is is your mother and if you stop to think about that then you realize, yeah well I guess um, the only person that would really know who my father is is my mother um, and even if my mother was married, I mean hypothetically nobody likes to think about this, but there is a possibility that there could have been another man and um, the only person that really really knows who your father is is your mother and uh, but for most of us we go through our lives and this doesn't cause much difficulty for us because unless we have um, you know unusual circumstances, uh, we would say well my mother was you know a reliable source of um, of information regarding my my paternal lineage, and I'm just going to take her word for it. And there's oodles of things in life where we simply take people's word for it. Even in science class, even in biology class, I mean, you take the professor's word for it. Yes, they do tests. Yes, they do experiments. But they're not going to be able to prove everything that they're showing you. But we trust that our teachers and the writers of our textbooks are basically reliable people. We still want to have our critical skills engaged and say well they might have got something wrong here but basically uh, we take most of what they say um, for granted that they are communicating uh, real facts and real knowledge. And so now we're ready to talk about where the conflict actually lies. And so the essential conflict is between two different epistemological systems um, revelation versus investigation which leads to faith versus fact. But as I have said this is a tension that is part of all human uh, interactions and relationships. You're always going to have this tension between trusting your textbooks and questioning your textbooks. There's always going to be this tension between uh, faith and the facts. The big difference here is um, whether or not you're going to allow God uh, and allow the Bible and allow you know the things revealed to us by God in the Christian religion to count as um, whether you're gonna trust God as a valid source of information or not and so again to to restate that to make it more clear often when people say you know religion versus science religion versus science when need dig down into that um, what do you mean religion versus science, and this way of investigation is not valid, it comes down to faith versus fact. And it's, it's perfectly rational to take somebody's word on something that you don't have access to. So it's invalid to say, well, you know, Christians are illogical because they rely on faith instead of investigating it for themselves we rely on faith all the time to give us information for things we don't have access to, such as scientific information in fields that we're not specialists on. Um, the The big difference is Christians believe that God is a valid source of information and uh, for various reasons we believe that he is faithful and reliable and that the Bible is faithful and reliable. And you do have to admit that if Jesus is God, if the Bible is written by a higher intelligence, a super intelligent being who is outside of space and time, who created all of space and time, and authored these words in the way that um, fundamentalists believe that he did, this would be a reliable source of information. In fact, it would be very helpful alongside of, um, alongside of science, and as we've seen, it it did help to create science. And so this does, in a way, bring us back almost to the beginning to say we're close to a place of science versus religion, but really what we're at is science versus God or science versus the Bible, uh, the Christian idea of God. And just as I spoke at the introduction and said, um, for example, my grandfather, I have you know, revelational information about him from my father. Um, there could be scientific ed- evidence for him as well, or I could investigate the matter. There's two ways of getting at the source. We have information from God in the Bible um, about nature and about ourselves, and we have n- information that we have found out for ourselves, and we can just group that and classify that under science. So let's talk for a little bit about uh, the tension and the interplay between um information we've received from God through the Bible and information we've received through uh, investigation of the natural world. Now in going further with this I found it helpful to divide um, the issue into three buckets basically to say there's a lot of places where the Bible agrees with science there's some places where the Bible speaks and science doesn't, or science speaks in... And... <laughs> hey buddy! I had no idea what I was talking about. My baby's smiling at me, so... Uh, there's some places where the Bible speaks and science doesn't. There's some places where the science speaks and the Bible doesn't. Um, and then there's a category of conflict, where they both speak, they both say something, but they appear to, they appear to conflict. So let's start in the first category. Um, Christianity is a very um, in a very privileged position, and um, we are. I want to do a podcast eventually called "The Worst of Times and the Best of Times," um, because we are in. It feels like we're in the worst of times as far as we have, you know, atheism, militant atheism, internet atheism, kind of um, in-your-face atheism. Uh, that that is really creating a lot of serious challenges to um, Christianity as well, you know, just secularism and things that have been around for a long time like Muslim uh, critiques against Christianity. And, and in that sense, you know, it's the worst of times. It's also the best of times because we have people like William Lane Craig, uh, Ravi Zacharias, um, Lee Strobel, um, creating Tim Keller, you know, even people like John Piper and Um, you know, Mark Driscoll and and others, creating really, really excellent defenses of the faith. And, I mean, even things like uh, the Big Bang, and we're going to talk about that a lot, and the Cosmological Argument. Um, There are major scientific discoveries, you know, earth-shattering, monumental discoveries that are... When you when you read them through a certain lens, very highly favorable to uh, Christianity, and so uh, and and so there's there's a lot of things in agreement in the category of science in accord with the Bible, and that category seems to be growing um, every year. At least this is from my perspective. But a lot of things that, um, you know, growing up I heard were this is a conflict, that's a conflict, now they've been resolved. And uh, increasingly science is, you know, we're we're seeing more and more proofs for God. Um, As well, most of the, and we're going to talk about the conflicts and the points of tension in the Bible, um, and between the Bible and science, but the main sweep of biblical history is not not seriously questioned. Um, when you go back, I mean, recorded history starts, I believe, around uh, 4500 um, BC, so around 6500 years ago. And um, I don't know the exact date, I have, I don't even know the millennium, but somewhere in there, Abraham sets out from Ur of Chaldees. I believe it was around 5000 years ago. Um, And Ur is a real place. Uh, It's in Mesopotamia. It's by the Euphrates. It's in the cradle of civilization, one of the oldest cities in existence. Um, And Abraham sets off, and he goes to Canaan. Canaan's a real place. We know about the Canaanites. And then he travels to Egypt. We know about the Egyptians. You know, these aren't mythical places that he went to. Uh, And they, you know, his him and his descendants go back and forth, and then they become a nation in Egypt and i just took uh, a course on ancient history uh the bronze age up to um well the dawn of of, of uh, recorded history up to um the the beginning of rome and um you know israel seemed like they were where they were supposed to be um they, there's evidence that they were in egypt at the, approximately the right time they they helped to build some of the cities there and then they were up in Canaan at about the right time um, they, uh, w- We have evidence of a lot of the kings uh, that were mentioned by, by neighboring you know, Assyrians as they're conquering and fighting and, and the Egyptians as they're doing trade and fighting exerting their dominance in, in Palestine. Um, Assyria is very definitely a real place that definitely conquered the northern tribes. Babylonia is a real place that conquered Israel and deported them, and then brought them back, um, and and patronized some of their building projects, as recorded in scriptures. Um, and Jesus is a real person. Uh, we're going to talk about this when we get to Jesus scholarship. But um, the idea that Jesus was just a myth, um, that he didn't really exist, uh, are, are has been really, really abandoned by scholarship. Um, we now. You know, scholarship now, secular scholarship, is now quite convinced that Jesus existed, that he was a teacher, that he was a miracle worker, that he was a Jew, that he traveled in Palestine, that he was born somewhere between 5 B.C. to uh, maybe about 2 after, uh, 2.80. Um, And he most likely, with a high degree of certainty, died 33 A.D., and they would know, people would know, like, the day and the hour, because it was a, a very specific um, Passover. Um, 33 A.D., he definitely died on a Roman cross. That's one of the most most substantiated facts, actually, in, in ancient history. Um, and N.T. Wright said that fact is, um, that one specific fact of Jesus' life is just as, highly substantiated as uh, many of the as as the life of um, Julius Caesar or something like that I might be messing up that quote but um, certainly that you know Jesus dying on a Roman cross is a, is a point in history that's very well known uh, and that his early Jesus followers um, started the, the Christian movement and they they sincerely believe that he rose from the dead or else they were really good liars Um... And uh, that the whole New Testament was written, um, like the last book, uh, like John, the Gospel of John would have been the last one, written in the late 90s, and Jesus died in 33, so the very last book of the New Testament, if we're not including Revelation, which might have been written up to 110, Um, so maybe I should include that. So so the whole Bible is written within 110 minus 33, what is that? 70 something years of jesus death most of it you know paul's writing uh between 18 and 30 years after jesus death something like that um and the gospels are written within about 40 years of jesus death so all very close to jesus um and you know accurate records of his his life so the the lion's share of of um information about christianity all much as liberal scholarship will play up and play up and play up. Oh, there was 18 years between Jesus' death and, and Paul. Wow, that's such a long time. Paul couldn't possibly have known. I mean, good grief. There was like 300 years between um, Alexander the Great and the person, the only person or, or, or the first person to write a biography about him. And, and people will make the claim that and it's probably true that mythical features crept in over 300 years. But in 18 years, you can you can do a pretty good job of, of writing, you know, what actually happened. And even 40 years um, it is fairly... Um, it's, I mean, what happened 40 years ago? Just stop and think about what happened 40 years ago and ask, do we have a pretty solid idea what happened back then? Okay, well... In the same way, um, it, it's likely that the Gospels record fairly accurately uh, the events of Jesus' life. And a lot of even liberal scholarship, even secular scholarship, is really coming around to saying, well, the basic events of Jesus' life, although um, there would be a lot of discussion about whether he was a cynic or he was um, you know, some sort of a rabbi, he was this sort of a rabbi, he was an Essene, but the basic features of Jesus' life are established, by, um, or, or mostly agreed on, um, by all who study Jesus' scholarship, and I'm getting very distracted by that subject, so I'll try and, and um, be more concise moving forward. Um, <clears throat> so there's most of, of the big things are in agreement with science and with liberal scholarship. By the way, I've mentioned liberal scholarship a few times. What I simply mean is um, non-Christian people studying Christianity. Uh, When I talk about liberalism, that's all I mean, is secular people studying Christianity, not from a perspective of faith, but from a perspective of trying to be objective and not believing any of the miracles recorded actually happened. And I recorded a five-podcast series on liberalism, so you can go back and listen to that so you know exactly what I mean by that. Um... The second category is the faith category. It's the category where uh, we don't have evidence either way. Um, did Jesus walk on water? I don't know. Uh, I mean, I do believe that he walked on water. Um, but liberal scholarship, secular people studying the Bible, would say, well, well," they would probably say that he didn't walk on water. Um, and so that could appear to be a conflict. Whereas... In reality, that isn't a conflict, it's just a matter where uh, we're seeing the limitations of, of the, the um, secular, or, or the scientific, if you want to call that, approach to history. Um, if a miracle happened, then secular science would not be able to see it. There's a blind spot there. If anything supernatural actually happened, they wouldn't be able to see that, so that's one problem. The other problem is that um, there's going to be a lot of areas that they just, there's going to be a question mark. There's going to be, there's a low degree of certainty about whether this happened or not. Um, Whether or not I, myself, went to a coffee shop yesterday, sat down and and drank a cup of coffee, um, is something that you guys will never know. Uh, and even if somebody did, re, you know, invested huge amounts of money or something to research this, um, the science would probably come up and say we don't really know what Josiah did um, on June twenty second, two thousand sixteen, at such and such a time and such and such a place. Um, there's a lot of things that, um, the, especially when we're talking about history, we just don't know. We just we just, nobody, no historian wrote it, or only one historian, and, you know, we have reasons for not, um, not trusting him, perhaps. And, or, or we trust him, but maybe with a low degree of certainty. And so there's a lot of places where um, we just simply don't know. From a uh, scientific perspective, you can almost never arrive at 100% certainty. If we got back to, you know, the example of my grandfather... Somebody could, maybe I could hire somebody to do historical research on him, and he might come back to me and say there is a high degree of certainty that he was actually a spy, or there's a low degree of certainty. Um, when you're doing historical research, you'll almost never come to a point where you say there's a 100% certainty. Absolutely, we know. And it's also likely, it's also possible, and, and maybe even likely, that he would come back just completely empty-handed and say, look, I have no idea. Um... I couldn't find any records of him. Now, when when there's a hole like that, when there's no records, that can mean one of two things. Either the thing didn't actually happen, or our system is broken, our system is inadequate. And often, uh, researchers will jump to the conclusion, well, we can't find any evidence of so-and-so, therefore he didn't exist. But lack of evidence is not evidence of absence and I'll say that again because it's really important. Lack of evidence is not evidence of absence. Um, If we jump to a crime scene metaphor, um, did uh, the butler do it or not? Well, the butler wasn't here. He didn't leave DNA evidence. He didn't leave fingerprints. He didn't leave footprints. But he, he had motivation and he had opportunity. Is the fact that he that we can't find any evidence that he was here, prove that he didn't do it. No, not necessarily, because he could have worn gloves and and, you know, slipped on something on his feet and, and not left a trace. In the same way, the fact that we're you know, there's no evidence left for Jesus walking on water doesn't necessarily prove that he didn't walk on water. That's just a place where you have a choice. Are you going to lean on faith? and say, I believe that he walked on water, or are you going to say, well, science doesn't prove it either way, so I'm not going to believe it either way? Again, getting back to my grandfather, um, I still can hold on to the word of my father and say, well, I believe these things about my grandfather, and that's a choice I can make. Faith is going to deal in, often, uncertainty, to say, well, you know, I I trust my dad, I I think this is right, I think this is what happened. You can be 100% sure of something, even if it hasn't been proven yet, if you're trusting, and that's a completely rational stance to take, if you're taking the word of somebody reliable. And the reliability of the Bible is something we're going to be talking about next in a podcast series on uh, inerrancy. So what about the last category, where there are clearly uh, contradictions between science and the Bible? First of all, we need to ask, are these really conflicts? Um, is it possible, again, that these aren't really uh, places where science is in conflict with uh, scriptures, but where science doesn't have adequate information yet, or where somebody has said, has, okay, well, there's several options, we'll just stick with that one for now. Um, I was listening to um, a an academic podcast as I often do and this one was uh, a recording of a conference on like biblical authority or something like that and they had a really liberal person there um, and she kind of said I feel out of place here because there's a lot of people that believe in inerrancy." And and her kind of opening line was look we don't have good evidence that Abraham existed, we don't have good evidence that uh, we have no evidence that King David existed and so we basically have to approach the whole Old Testament as 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 though it didn't really happen, it's just mythology. And, um... again, that can really shake your faith, that can really make you think, well okay, so science says this, science says that the Old Testament is not is not true. But does science really say that, or is that just one person's opinion? Uh, What evidence does she actually have? She has an absence of evidence, and um, absence in an argument from silence is is a very weak argument, and so again this is this is simply just gonna push us back into the category of faith to say well there's no evidence that Abraham existed, if we're talking about archaeological evidence, there's plenty of evidence that he existed from a religious and social perspective because half of the world is now worshipping his God Um, but, you know, from an archaeological perspective, okay, there's no evidence that he existed, but there's no reason necessarily that we would expect there to be evidence that he existed. He was a nomadic person, lived in tents, didn't build anything, didn't, I mean, he conquered a few, you know, minor kings, but he, you know, was certainly not a warlord. There's no real reason that his name would be written in stone somewhere and preserved for um, the next and, or th- three and a half millennia. And so we need to ask, is this really a contradiction, or is it a, simply an argument from silence, or is this somebody's theory? A theory, no matter how vigorously stated, no matter what the credentials behind it, if there's no proof, it's just somebody's opinion. And we need to have the courage to say, look, doctor so-and-so, that's just your opinion until you get, show me the facts. And this goes as well for trends and moves in in scholarship. And, you know, liberal scholarship is a thing that people are studying Christianity in the same way that, you know, I study world religions from the perspective of an outsider. And, you know, liberal scholarship on Christianity is continually changing and evolving and they're coming up with new ideas and new theories and they're proposing them and other people are knocking them down and there's a continual... Um, you know, overturning of what's old and, and new ideas are coming along. And this is all very interesting and, and if, if you put the right lenses on you can, you can you know, mine it for interesting things um, even from the perspective of a believer. But these are all, I mean, a lot of it, a huge amount of it is speculation. And often when you're reading a paper it's it's hard to discern what is what is speculation, what is theory, and what are the actual hard facts that are there. And often the hard facts are very few and far between in people's opinions, um, you know, based on their research and their expertise, of course, but their opinions are the main thing that they're talking about. Um, so, again, is this a contradiction uh, or is this merely somebody's opinion about what happened? Something that occurs to me right now, um, and I guess this is point D, and I'm going to try not to get confused here because I'm not writing notes, but. Um, In my series on liberalism, I really talked about how the difference between a liberal approach to Christianity and a conservative approach, or Christian approach to Christianity, is um, that Christians believe miracles happen, whereas secular scholarship liberalism does not believe that miracles happen. Um, This introduces a bias. This introduces um, a certain perspective. And they're going to read everything around uh, the belief that miracles don't actually happen. So, did Moses part the Red Sea? No. How did they, did the plagues happen? No. So how did the people of Israel get out of Egypt? And a liberal is going to try and solve that problem. And he's going to come up with a whole bunch of theories, and then somebody else will come up with alternate theories, and they're going to discuss how this actually happened. Or they're going to decide that this didn't actually happen, and this was all just made up. Um from a Christian perspective, you can kind of look at that all and say, well, I believe miracles happen. So this whole discussion is kind of moot. As well, um, point E, uh, archaeology is a really young science in a lot of ways. Um, it really only started in the 19th century and they're still, um, working to decode, uh, a lot of the the, the oldest languages, and uh, some of the ones that that have been really tricky and difficult. They just you know it's been. I don't have the precise dates, but somewhere in the ninth, maybe the eighteen ninety or so, they just deciphered hieroglyphics, and then after that, some of cuneiform and some of the other yeah. ancient languages, and you know all these new information. They're still you know reading new information, and they're still digging in the dirt, finding new tablets, finding new new cities, of course, with all the stuff going on in, in the Middle East in general, and Syria in particular. And it's so tragic, because all the really interesting stuff is in Syria, where um, you almost don't want anything to get dug up, because it'll get blasted, smashed, or run over right now. Um, but there's a lot that archaeology can tell us, but there's a lot that it hasn't yet uncovered. And, um, so far, the history of archaeology, the tendency has been from apparent conflict to, as we get more information, there's a resolution and support. Um, originally it was thought, oh, Nineveh, you know, this, there couldn't have been an ancient city that big, that it would take you three days to walk across. It's it, That's just crazy, it couldn't be that big. Well, now they've found Nineveh. And, um, you know, we know a lot about the city and, um, and the dimensions of it, etc. I don't actually know whether it's, it's as big as it was said in, in uh, Jonah. Um, as well, many facts from the book of Daniel that, um, you know, when Daniel was going to be, uh, you know, correctly identified the handwriting on the wall and stuff like that, the, uh, King Belshazzar said, uh, you'll be the third person in my kingdom. Um, and, and that was often thought as strange. Why wouldn't he be the second person in the kingdom? Well, with with more research, with more archaeology, we find out that Belshazzar was actually the, the co-regent with his father, and his father was the, the highest person in the kingdom. And, you know, just random things like that that were lost to us in time, and so when, when people first started, you know, kind of comparing the Bible to what they thought they knew about history, they thought this was a contradiction, um, but when you find more information, we realize, no, actually, this isn't a contradiction. And the one, you know, the, kind of the shining example of this is that we found David. We found David. Uh, and um, I don't know the date exactly, but sometime in the late uh, 20th century, they found a pillar with an inscription that said something about King David, uh, King of the Jews. And this was, as I mentioned, I mean, this used to be kind of a cornerstone of a liberal's um, critique on, uh, on conservative readings of the Bible, is that, well, you know, we don't only have David. I mean, come on, if you don't have David, who do you have? And now we have David. And, um, you know, so we have a foundation point, a starting point for the lineage of the Davidic um, uh, monarchy and dynasty. And so... It might sound like an, um, kind of a God of the Gap sort of an argument, but with the trend of archaeology, um, increasingly, it seems like you know one generation of liberal scholarship will say, "Well, the Bible is not true because this, 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 and this." The next generation will come along and say, "Well, actually, new finds, new discoveries, new theories um, dismiss these old problems." Perhaps there's a new set of problems, uh, but um, increasingly it seems as though there's, there's more and more discoveries in support of Christianity. Um, finally, uh, so what do we do when we really hit a wall, a contradiction that we can't deal with? I'm going to have a whole podcast series that I've already recorded, it's out there, it just needs to um, have it scheduled to publish on inerrancy, which is basically talking about, you know, what do we do with the mistakes in the Bible, or is the Bible perfect, or whatever. So I'm going to leave that for the future podcast, and especially the last one called The Agony of Inerrancy. Um, If you're listening to this in the future that will already be published, you can skip straight to that one. Uh, It's going to lay out a lot of tools for helping us, you know, wrestle with this question of inerrancy, is the Bible perfect, is the Bible Um, really the Word of God. But um, I do just want to mention one thing that I mentioned in that podcast, is that um, often evangelical Christians have an extremely high view of Scriptures, that we believe it's perfect, and it's without error, and it's inspired by God, which is good, I believe in this. But we feel as though if, if this view of Scripture is broken in any way, if there's any small errors anywhere, that we have to resort all the way down to thinking scripture is just, you know, a fairy tale. And in between these two, um, and I, I go to great lengths to talk about a safety net in between these two of Bartian uh, scholarship, and which I'll talk about that in the other podcast series, but also just reliability that, look, Whether or not it's 100% perfect, from a liberal standpoint, from a secular standpoint, the Bible is an extremely important resource for ancient civilizations. It's an extremely important resource for Jesus of Nazareth. It's an extremely important resource for finding about... all. I mean, secular people use the Bible all the time when um, trying to understand ancient people and ancient... um, you know, religion and, and practice and things like this. Um, and so we shouldn't think that just because we can't prove that it's 100% inerrant. Um, if we can't, uh, and, and I believe that we can, but if hypothetically we couldn't, we don't need to fall all the way down to say, well, it's just a myth, it's a fairy tale. Um, and, and I think evangelicals do ourselves a disservice in in kind of just laying out those two options, either it's perfect or it's complete garbage. Um, so more on that in on the podcast on inerrancy. If scriptures aren't perfect and inerrant, they certainly, at the very least, are extremely reliable resources, uh, for describing ancient life. And most importantly, for giving us access to Jesus, and recording his life, and, um, it's through Jesus that we are saved, and again, listen to the podcast "The Agony of Inerrancy" when it comes out. Okay, so now that I have you very much anticipating that podcast that won't come out for another few weeks, sorry about that. Uh, let's see if I can skim over this and re- and summarize it for you. So I said that science versus religion is not a very good way to pose the debate because, in, for various reasons, but uh, most prominently because science works just fine with religion and because, um, you know, the two have been happy bedfellows for years. Um, rather, when people point to that tension, what they're often ten- pointing to is a tension between the faith and the facts or uh, investigation versus revelation. And there's nothing wrong in, hu- in normal human discourse uh, with saying, I believe this, I have faith in you. In fact, this is what we do with our scientists all the time, we believe that that the system works, that they have credentials, and that those credentials mean something, that they're telling the truth. Um, where the real difficulty, where the real rub lies, is basically just with the Bible, the the propositional truth claims of the Bible when they come in conflict with with um, what our investigation seems to be telling us. And so it might seem like a a distinction without a difference, but I think it's helpful to say what we're really talking about is science versus the Bible, versus the propositional statements in the Bible. um, When the Bible puts its foot down and says, this is true, this is not true, sometimes these come in conflict with uh, the evolving, changing, moving um, ideas of society, ideas of science, ideas of history, ideas um, of politics, etc., In a lot of ways, these conflicts will always take place. They need to take place because science can't work without um, some amount of of freedom. Revelation is in many ways static, whereas investigation is fluid and ongoing. And this will lead to conflicts, and uh, we're going to talk more about what to do with those conflicts in the podcast series on inerrancy. Um, But briefly, first of all, there's a lot of things that are in agreement with science. Secondly, a lot of these things we need to ask, are they really conflicts, or is this just somebody's opinion or a lack of evidence? And we said that when we hit a real difficulty where we don't know what to do with it, um, that can cause real real trouble for our faith, and that's where we're going with the future podcast on inerrancy. Um, I also want to direct you to a podcast called um, Evolving or Reforming. Is, is the Christian Church evolving or reforming? And in this podcast, I talked about the fact that um, the Christian Christianity is, um, as uh, the reformers said, as as John Calvin said, we were reformed and reforming. That there's a sense in which the Christian religion um, is a changing religion. It's not static. Um, and in that podcast, I did a lot of work on differentiating between evolution, which is unbounded, and free, and there's no way of predicting what the next step is, and reforming, which is still change, um, is still progress, but we're always looking back to the Bible. We're always pushing back to saying what is truth. And I think that when we hit an issue where we say, wow, society is saying one thing and the Bible is saying another, that puts a lot of pressure on us to say, what do we really believe on this issue? Um, Same as when science puts a lot of pressure on us to say, what do we actually believe on this issue? And either society is wrong, or the way that we interpreted the Bible is wrong. And that is a big difference, how we interpreted the Bible and what the Bible actually says. And um, there have been a lot of ways that this sort of pressure has helped us reform and see the Bible through new eyes and see new insights in the Bible that we didn't see before, such as slavery. Um, Many people 200 years ago thought slavery was just fine. Today, in large part through the efforts of Christians, but also, and that was felt at times through secular pressure, um, we realize no, the Bible is very much against slavery. And Christians today realize that. Um... As well, in large part, our view of women has changed, and there will be div- diversity within the church um, regarding how um, how we should talk about gender in the home and gender in the church and things like this. But there's very few people that would would hold to a hard line um, distinction of between the genders that would have been very common two, three hundred years ago. There has been a reformation uh, as we go back to scriptures because of the pressure from culture um, reinterpreting scriptures. And um, sometimes scriptures give us the permission to do that. In fact, we, I think, have a better grasp of scriptures today than we ever have. But sometimes scriptures don't give us that permission. And I think homosexuality is, is the big issue today, where scriptures, it seems, are just unyielding. They don't budge. They don't move. And so again, listen to my podcast on reforming or evolving. That's about all I want to say. We're coming up on an hour here, and I just want to say God bless you, and I hope this material is helpful to you. It's about the fourth time I've recorded this podcast. The material I've shared here has been really helpful to me personally, and I hope it's helpful to you as well. And I hope you'll stick around for future podcasts on inerrancy, Uh, Science and Christianity, apologetics, and other things I like to talk about. Have a good night. God bless.